I do need to make uh, one or highlight one thing in the bulletin um, next to reflecting on God's Word, which is the, the sermon. That is the title. That is not the person giving it. Sorry, you are stuck with the same Adam giving the sermon. <clears throat> A couple people wondered this morning if somebody different was coming up or what the mask was hiding. That's, that's, a different, that's deeper and a little different conversation, what the mask is hiding, huh? I do have a question, though, to get us thinking here this morning, and uh, not a rhetorical question, just kind of, we've been doing a little bit of this, yell out your, your answers. Um, the first question is, do scars exist in heaven? Heard some people say no. Yes. Some people said yes. What, what scars do you think? Jesus scars. What about the rest of us? <laughs> Chet said, we don't know. That is true. You got me there. Another question, <clears throat> is there a difference between soul and spirit? I will confess I had never thought about this question until partway through this week. Is there a difference between our soul and our spirit or what spirit is? Now, I'm going to ask you, the, Dick said yes, uh, let me ask you the follow-up question, how? Well, I don't quite understand it, but the soul, our spirit is with us on earth, and the soul is, goes with us to heaven, the spirit is the soul. So, I'm going, to, I'm going to suggest here that we're going to get there, uh, I think Paul flips that. I think, he, I think he's saying largely what you are saying, just he's using those terms kind of different. But we're, we're going we're gonna to get there in a moment. I had never given this question um, much thought. I think I've used those pretty interchangeably. Well, we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. We've kind of been working our way um, fr- through the latter part of 1 Corinthians in the last few weeks, and uh, we're going to be kind of wrapping up our 1 Corinthians discussion this week, and, and next week the lectionary has us in, the, in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, which I found out in uh, a class that I took years ago in, uh, on the Corinthian correspondence. These are a series of letters that Paul writes, that 1 Corinthians is at least 2 Corinthians as far as the letters that Paul actually wrote. Paul wrote some letter before this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. We don't have that letter, or maybe we have a remnant of it. We're not sure. Um, And 2 Corinthians, all stuff that isn't super important for our conversation this morning, uh, but interesting nonetheless, I think, to me, anyway. As we look at this passage, would you pray with me? 
Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, our conversation together be pleasing to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we kind of focused on the resurrection of Christ and the necessity of the resurrection event on that first Easter Sunday. Uh, Paul places huge importance on that being a literal event that there is no longer any body, any husk left in the tomb. We talked a little bit about how that has implications for us. Sometimes folks have looked at um, 1 Corinthians 15 and particularly the first like 11 verses and they've said this is Paul's summary of the gospel, those first 11 verses. And we actually kind of talked about that as well. Uh, One New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, suggests that actually Paul's summary extends through the whole chapter of 15, that this is all included in Paul's idea of what the good news is and what it means for us, what it means for the life of the world. Paul is ultimately looking at the hope of resurrection, The human problem, the thing that we all deal with, is ultimately death. We we kind of talk about how our our problem is sin. It's doing things our own way. Uh, If you go back to uh, Genesis and and Adam and Eve choose to uh, define good and evil for themselves, and that is their sin, that's their broken relationship uh, with God, and God warns them that that is going to lead to death. And so maybe properly our human issue, our human problem is sin that leads to death. Relationship with God is meant to mean life. And breaking that relationship, which we call sin, leads to death. I want to give you a little bit of a summary of Paul's discussion here. Uh, not verse by verse. If you were listening, there, it gets pretty dense and there's a lot of uh, imagery that's kind of put in there, packed in there. I encourage you to to take this text home and and read it and think a little bit more about all of the different images that are a part of that uh, short passage of Scripture that we read this morning. But Paul has talked about the necessity of the resurrection of Christ. And and last week he called it the first fruits, the first taste of the rain or the kingdom of God. This is our first little uh, bit, the appetizer of what the whole thing is going to be like in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul sets up this discussion of resurrection of the dead. And and he's starting to get pretty heated. Um, The translation that we read this morning, he calls the Corinthians fools. You fools. Uh, Some translations say, how foolish for you to believe, uh, ask such questions. And Paul gives several examples of what he means with resurrection. 
He talks about a seed that is planted. It's, it's dried up. It appears dead. But if it's planted, if it's watered and, and, and cared for, it grows. And only God knows exactly how that seed, that plant is going to grow, how it's going to, to vine out, how it's, where its leaves are going to be, exactly what kind of fruit it's going to bear. Only God knows those things. Paul talks about different kinds of bodies, a human body, an animal body. He talks about different heavenly bodies such as sun, moon, and stars. And then Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Different kinds of bodies. But he's dealing with a group of people in the Corinthians who are very influenced by Greek philosophy and they're misunderstanding what Paul means by the resurrection. They don't like the idea of reanimating the dead, and, and literally that's what the Greek means. The other week we sang a song called Anastasis, and that is the, the Greek word for reanimating. Uh, so in here, there's this um, necros, dead bodies, and we use that in some of our words today. Necros anastasis, reanimating the dead. And the, in the Greek mind, for the Corinthians, they think of that as purely a physical reanimation, and that seems absolutely ridiculous to them. We talked last week about you know, some images of like zombies coming to their minds, right? It's not a pretty picture for us in our own minds. But that's what the Corinthians uh, begin to think of when Paul is talking about resurrection. But Paul is, not, is, Paul is contending that resurrection is not just physical. It is also spiritual. It's also not just disembodied spirits. That The resurrection is not just our essence or our energy floating around. That's not what the resurrection is. That's not where the New Testament is headed uh, in the end of all things with these energy orbs floating around. No, no, no. Resurrection is something more. It's physical or embodied. When I've often read this passage and we get to the... um, uh, physical versus spiritual. We get to these, these things and, and we often read this as one versus the other. It's an unfortunate uh, belief that's been continued in some versions of modern American church or pop Christianity that it's physical versus spiritual. And that when we die, our souls are with Jesus and that's the end of the story. There's lots of different Christian ideas of precisely what happens the moment we die. There's some Christians that really point to uh, where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We look at where Jesus says to the repentant thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Not sure exactly what that means. Some verses that also seem to point maybe to a a state of sleep waiting for the resurrection. These are different Christians who believe Jesus is Lord, Jesus uh, was resurrected, all have slightly different ideas of exactly what happens the moment we die. uh, N.T. Wright, who's a, a New Testament scholar, 
has helped to clarify for the modern church that Scripture as a whole, and especially the New Testament, is far more interested in the final state of things rather than precisely identifying what happens the moment we die. N.T. Wright uses the term uh, life after, life after death. What Scripture is looking at is what happens at the end when Jesus returns and and is made all in all and the kingdom of God comes to its, its full manifestation. What's happening? And this seems to be what Paul is talking about right here. And unfortunately, our our. English translations don't always help us out to help us see what Paul is doing here. And we often read it, at least I've often read this, as perishable versus imperishable, or dishonorable versus honorable, weak versus powerful, or physical versus spiritual. But more accurately, what Paul is doing is presenting something of a progression. First perishable, then imperishable, sown in dishonor, but grows into something honorable, sown in weakness, but grows into something powerful, sown as purely physical, but grows into something spiritual, something more. Paul connects the biblical story by looking at the type of human or the type of Adam, says the first Adam, the first human one, became a living soul, an embodied soul. But the last Adam, the last human one, became an embodied, life-giving spirit. That spirit seems to be something that is infused with the breath of God, that is, that is connected intimately to who God is and to God's spirit. And again, I've never really thought of soul and spirit as two different things. And so I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this, uh, about what exactly distinguishes one from the other. But this is how uh, Paul uses these terms in in this passage. Both are embodied, wrapped in flesh, but one bears the image or the imprint of being breathed into by God's Spirit. And Paul says in verse 49, then, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. I saw a post on social media a number of months ago that said something like this, I dusted once and it ended up coming right back. I'm not falling for that anymore. (laughs) But I've thought about that, being a man of dust. When your name's Adam, you tend to, you know, kind of uh, internalize that message a little bit more. That all my own dusting, and dust is nasty stuff, decaying cells, little bits of us that have flaked off, dirt and you know, all kinds of other stuff if you put it under the microscope that I don't really care to do. But all my own dusting, trying to get rid of the filth, trying to get rid of the decay hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. 
We are of dust. A collection of these dead skin cells and decaying matter. But in Christ, it is being transformed. Being breathed into with new life. So what might our final resurrection be like? What might it be like for us to have these resurrected, breathed into, God-connected bodies, selves. Well, we only have one real example to look at in Jesus. There's others in the New Testament who are brought back to life. Lazarus is raised uh, to, to life. But Lazarus is still going to have to face death again, right? Others that Jesus brought back to life. We're still going to, at some point, have to deal with death again. Only Jesus is raised and then ascends. And so if we understand Jesus' resurrected body as normative for what a resurrected person will be like or as the, the example of what a resurrected person will be like, then Jesus' resurrected body is in continuity with the old. When he's brought back to life, when, when uh, the women come to the tomb and then the disciples race there and get there and they check out the tomb, there's nothing left. There's no, there's no husk of a body. There's no, you know, like, it's not like a, a snake that sheds its skin and left part of his husk there. He's been breathed into with new life. And so it's in continuity with the old. We see Jesus is recognizable to his friends, but something is different. Mary Magdalene uh, interacts with Jesus in, in, in the garden uh, outside of the tomb, and at first she mistakes him for a gardener. Maybe that's just because he has his robe or you know, a hood pulled up over him and she doesn't quite get him uh, or, or recognize him. Uh, maybe there's a, a reason uh, for why she doesn't at first recognize Jesus. But we're also told about this story where these, there's these couple of guys that are on the road to Emmaus walking with Jesus. Jesus is explaining the good news from the Hebrew Bible to them as they walk, and yet they don't recognize who he is. And so there's something different about him. Until he, they don't recognize him until he breaks bread with them. Jesus' resurrected body is, is physical. He's, he's eating, he's talking, he's visible. And yet, uh, of something slightly different in that he's walking through walls and suddenly appearing and disappearing uh, in their midst. We also see that Jesus' body continues to bear the scars of crucifixion. We don't get to analyze his body after he ascends. Maybe they all disappear when he ascends. Um, but when he's there, when he's resurrected, he bears the scars. So I wondered this week, what if some of our scars remain? Physical or emotional? Do the scars become part of our story? Part of what shapes us into the people that we are? 
And I wonder how in the final resurrection does God redeem and heal through those scars? In what ways is God redeeming our stories and our scars, our wounds? How is is God breathing new life already into us? Paul's talking about how the, the resurrection is in continuity with the old but is being transformed. What Paul is trying to get at is that the future resurrection, new creation, is not just burning up the old and disposing of it. It's not disembodied souls floating through the air. Resurrection and new creation are about bringing the story to its conclusion, making all things the way God intended in the beginning. When Paul's talking about the old Adam and the new Adam, Paul wants us to to go back and to think about the Genesis creation story, about where this all started and what God's intent was from the very beginning. Again, in verse 49, Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, We will also, or or a better reading would be, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. So whatever our scars, whatever our, our physical or emotional wounds we bear, God is about the work of transforming, changing, and healing. And we believe that this is something that can already begin. We talk about baptism as a new birth and God is beginning to transform and beginning to renew and beginning to to mold us into the image of Jesus, mold us into the image of that man from heaven. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And so we believe, too, though, that this final resurrection, this final transformation, healing will come when Christ is made all in all and the reign of Christ come to its full realization and embodiment. So it's something that God, that Christ is beginning in us now. And we are waiting for the the full realization, the full resurrection, the full transformation. So Paul concludes chapter 15 with this crescendo of um, what is happening in the resurrection. I want you to hear these verses. Starting at 51. Paul says, listen, I will tell you a mystery, something that you might not wrap your whole mind around right now. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? 
Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he finishes with this. Therefore, my beloved, my friends, my family, brothers and sisters in Christ, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That last line is an emphatic answer to Paul's proposal earlier in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember, Paul had said, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, we are still dead in sin. If that's all the case, our preaching, our faith, our lives are in vain and all for nothing. But Paul is concluding by saying, he is stating emphatically that in fact, our labor is not in vain. It means something. And God is transforming us, molding us into the image of the new Adam, the embodied spirit of God, man, in Jesus Christ. This is good news, amen? Going to invite our response. Uh, You can turn uh, in your hymnal. I need a... I need a number here. It's uh, in the bulb, there is a flower. Judy, do you have the number for that? 614. 614. You can turn in your blue hymnal to 614 or look on the screens. Would you stand as we close with this hymn?